church, why don't you take a seat? And Happy New Year to you all. Oh, thank you. That was a great response. When I was about 15, I remember going on my first ever job interview. Does everyone remember their first job interview? Well, mine was a little bit of an accidental job interview because where we lived at Fernie Hills, or if you know Arani Hills, Kmart Plaza at the time, there was a new uh, deli that was opening up, and my next-door neighbour, who was one of my best friends, told me, I'm going down for a job interview. So I said, well, I'll come with you. And so I did, not expecting necessarily to be part of this, but there's a lineup of mostly high school students for this part-time job at a deli. And so I thought last minute, I'm going to go for it. So I stood in line, had my, my turn in front of the lady in this new shop that hadn't yet been fitted out. And, um, and when I sat down in front of her, it dawned on me that I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> that I was completely unprepared. In fact, what is a deli? Because I knew that there was usually um, sliced meat and things like that behind that window, but that was my, what my mum took care of. And so how was I ever going to do this? How was I going? Anyway, I was in this really awkward position of having no preparation, and you know, she, the interviewer, knew it, and she could tell. I had no experience, I had no resume with me, I had no references. To be honest, my grades at high school weren't that flash, so I wasn't going to talk about those. I was shy and nervous, and all I can remember is at the very end, it was only about five minutes, which is always a bad sign when your job interview goes that quickly. All I remember is saying, all I can tell you is that I'm a loyal person and you can rely on me. And she said, thank you very much, and it was all over. And I walked away thinking, how stupid was I for thinking that I could do this last-minute job interview with no preparation, and I thought I had no chance. Now, my friend, on the other hand, he went prepared. He had the pieces of paper with some report cards to show how good his teachers, how much his teachers liked him and all that sort of stuff. And the funny thing is he didn't get the job, and I did. And all I can think of is that that last line that I said, you know, I'm a loyal person and you can rely on me, must have, must have made a difference. And I think she, she must have thought, I can work with that, perhaps. Now, I do not re recommend this approach to your next <laughs> job interview. I say you should go prepared, but it does make a good sermon illustration, right? <laughs> Because I'm reminded of this interview, when I read the first line in the famous sermon that Jesus preached on the side of a mountain, I thought of this. We're going to be doing a sermon series, by the way, called Mountain Retreat. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at parts of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a long sermon. Well, it's three chapters, but there is a lot in it, okay? And we're not going to be able to cover everything, but... I thought, well, what can we do? What can I start with? And of course, it's in the very beginning. This is the, the words of Jesus that I felt like I needed to speak about today. So we're in Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. We'll go through to verse 12, but mostly we're going to be focusing on verse 3. But here we go, verse 1 of Matthew 5. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. So it's just like... Uh, when you go on a retreat up to Mount Tambourine or something like that, 
and you sit down and all the teaching begins. In fact, I know that CMS is on this week up Mount Tamarine. It's kind of like that. It's a mountain retreat. And here's what Jesus said, verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, you're looking at that NLT and thinking it's a little bit unfamiliar. So the NIV that you are familiar with or some of the other translations, just to remind you, was blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which on the surface is kind of hard to understand. What is Jesus saying? So I kind of like how the NLT did it. You can go back to the NLT version if you want, Harley, there. It's those who are poor and realize their need for him. But you may be tempted to think this verse is only written to those who are financially poor. You know, this is a word to those who are in need financially, struggling to make ends meet. But you see, by poor, I think what Jesus is really saying is poor in ways beyond what we have materially. So God, Jesus is saying he blesses those who are poor, not just materially, but in other ways. So we're trying to make sense of what he means by this. God blesses those, here's what I think it is, God blesses those who come to God with nothing. The blessing that Jesus promises is for those who completely trust in God and God alone and not in anything that they have or that they even think that they can bring to the table for God to use. I hope I'm making sense. This is a teaching about trusting God first and what fights against that kind of trust. What works against us and ultimately the blessing that we miss out on. The hard truth is that anything in our life that we lean on or desire or trust instead of God, I'm just going to say it becomes an idol to us. Anything that's not trusting God alone can become an idol. And we know what God thinks about idol worship, don't we? We we don't think that we worship idols because in the Old Testament they were often little made out of wood or, or metals of some sort and we thought that's the idols. But actually there's other parts in the Bible. It's very clear that Things like love of money becomes an idol. We know what God says about worship of idols. So this is the first point in the sermon from Jesus. Blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for him. Perhaps if I can just put it in my own words for a second. Blessed are those without idols in their life and trust Jesus only for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So here's my list today of potential idols that can steal our trust in Jesus and they rob us of a, of a deeper relationship with him. And then eventually, and essentially Jesus says that I bless you when you're like this. So it can rob us of a blessing. So the first one, the obvious one, is my wealth. But let me just say first up, this is not a message or a command for us to live in poverty. That is not the command here or the, or the teaching that Jesus is giving. This is a message about breaking the trust we put in our wealth and our things, instead being able to put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's very hard to do. It's very hard. If you're here today and for whatever reason 
you're barely scraping by. God isn't calling you into that poverty to stay there. Let me just be clear about that. He is, if that's you though today, and you might be here and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm in that position. I'm living week to week, day to day. I can barely afford to get by. If that's you in that position, he is offering you a blessing, by the way, while you're there. Because you know what it means to really trust God in that season. And if you can learn that lesson of trust, you will be blessed. That's the blessing right there. And that lesson in trust will stay with you forever. You know what it really means to trust God, just to pay the rent or the power bills or to put food on the table for the next week. That's a deep trust that many may not learn, but you might. And I think it'll stay with you through many seasons in life. You get what it means when Jesus says, trust him, and knowing how to trust is the blessing. I'm not saying we should strive for financial poverty, by the way. I don't think that that's the, the message, or even to stay in poverty if that's where you find yourself. I don't think that's the message either. If financial poverty is not your problem or has never been your problem, finding that level of trust is, it must still be within reach for us, but it may be harder to find because it means, you know, we've got to do something to break the trust in stuff and wealth and put our trust in Jesus. We have to stretch ourselves. Sometimes it might be even giving like the disciples did. You remember last week we, we learned about Barnabas? I mean, that guy, that's trusting Jesus. He sold his property and gave the whole lot to the poor. And sometimes it's think, it could be something like that. Maybe that's too extreme for us, but whatever it is, it's how can I learn to trust Jesus and not my wealth? That's the hard teaching in this opening point. The lesson is to do whatever we can to remove it from that to God and God alone. The lesson is to not hold so tightly to our things. And I've said it, I keep saying it, it's very hard, isn't it? It's very hard. I'm with you in this. I understand. It's very hard not to put our trust in a bigger and bigger bank account or a nicer and nicer this and that, but to put it into God first. Our trust is not in our stuff. And by the way, I want to caution you about thinking about blessings for a second. I want to caution you about thinking the actual blessing that Jesus is promising us here for trusting him ahead of wealth is actually more wealth. Now, it may be that, but somehow I doubt that the very cause of our potential idol is going to be more of that same thing. The blessing may be a financial provision for a need, and it may be um, a substantial amount of money, but I think that God would, would be providing that to you so that you can put it in the right place and be more generous. The blessing, in my opinion, is a life that is filled with a contentment and a peace that we have with what... God has already provided. And it's a blessing of life-giving, close-walking relationship with Jesus that comes through a deep trust in him. Here's my second potential idol. And it's my gifts and talents. That seems like a weird thing to put in as an idol. God blesses those who don't come to him, though, with their awesomeness. 
you know, we, we can be tempted to do that. Hey, hey God, here I am, and I've got so much good stuff. I'm awesome. Now, I think what God is saying first and foremost to us is what I want as a humble person. In fact, verse 5, which is a little bit further down in this sermon, says exactly that. God blesses those who are humble, for they will, they will inherit the whole earth. It's almost like Jesus is saying, it's the humble people that I'm going to be using in powerful ways. The humble people. Not the ones who think that we're awesome. The humble people. I think it's very much reflected in this idea of being poor in spirit. It's an approach to God that says, God, I bring nothing to you except for me. Humility doesn't advance myself over others. It advances others above me. Humility is the opposite to pride. And we know that pride sneaks in really easily, doesn't it? Pride is an inward, look, I'm just going to say it, it's a sinful desire that says I'm more important than others. Pride says I must be right. Pride says I must always win. Pride says, I know better than you and probably everybody else. The words in the scripture here is saying that God doesn't bless pride. He blesses humility. Pride is not poor in spirit. This is the attitude of poor in spirit. All of you, God, and none of me. Poor in spirit wants what God wants. First, poor in spirit wants others to be elevated and to do well. And poor in spirit says, I want everyone in my life and around me that I encounter, I want them to flourish. And I'll do what I can for that to happen. When we learn to trust God, we trust him and not our giftedness or our talents. Now, of course, every good gift comes from God, but that is, that's not where we put our trust. The gifts are good. The talents are great. God created us in his image. I'm not against them. But we don't hang our trust on those things. Our trust is in God and God alone. God is looking for people who trust him first and not what they already have. You know, I just think those are the people that he can use. The third thing, and again, you'll think this one's weird. Third idol can be my intellect and experience. Or knowledge was the other one I thought of there. It's a bit similar to that previous one. It can, come, it can become too easy to put our trust in what we know and our experience and our study and learning and intellect, all of which are so important, but it's not what we hang our trust on. Now, I've met some very intelligent and smart people who can, they can run rings around me intellectually and theologically, but there can be a danger of being theologically arrogant and prideful. You know, we think we can outthink and outargue others because we have all the answers. There's no blessing in putting our trust in those things above God. And again, I say, don't get me wrong. There is blessings in studying theology and reading books from great men and women of God and knowing the Bible inside out. And I will advocate for those things every day of the week. And I do them myself because you do need them. And they are indeed a blessing. And the Bible itself does say we should love God with everything, including our mind. So do not hear me wrong here. I'm not telling you that um, using knowledge and, and intellect is some kind of evil. I'm not. I'm just saying you be careful 
that, you, that those things, you treat them as a gift from God and they don't replace God himself. Because the temptation is to put trust back on us and how good I am. But God blesses those who put their trust in him. The fourth thing is my dreams and plans. You know, I actually think God loves a good vision. I think he loves an exciting plan. If it's his vision and his plan for us. That's the vision and the plan he blesses. You know, Moses, he had, a, he had a great vision or a plan to live his life out in the wilderness with his new family until God gave him a vision to lead a nation out of captivity. The Israelites had a great vision to have a king. That wasn't God's plan for them. He was their king. It was their plan, not God's, but eventually, you know, you've read the account, he gets sick of their complaining and he appoints Saul to be their first king. And if you've read Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you know that the vast majority of the kings of Israel were terrible. Eventually the nation would split in two and be conquered, led off into exile. God's plan is better. He loves a dream. He loves a vision. He loves a plan. If it's his plan, if it's his vision, if it's his dream, God's plan is better. And today as we think of communion, we say, thank you, God, that nothing would stop his plan for the Savior to come. When we come to Jesus, we come poor in spirit. In other words, we don't bring our plan to Jesus to bless. We ask him for his plan for us, and that takes trust. But God blesses trust in him. There are other kinds of idols that we put ahead of God. In fact, I thought of a few others, but had to delete them because I didn't want a long sermon today. But there are many, many others. I'll tell you one I have as a pastor... It's when I see success in other churches sometimes around the world because we read their books and we listen to their, to their DVDs of these pastors who have amazing success. It becomes an idol. And I start trusting that instead of God. There's many other things. I bet you can think of some yourself. You know, the problem with all these things is that they point to the priorities of the heart, don't they? You know, I love Peter Schizero. He's got this little quote he often says in his podcast. He says, the heart is an idol factory. Do you know what he means? All these things start to bubble up out of here that aren't necessarily from God. And, and, and we start to put our trust in those things. It wants and wants and wants and, and sadly too often it wants the wrong things. But the truth is, if we want God, what God wants first... If we want God first and bring to him just an empty me with empty hands or open hands and a closed mouth and two open listening ears and no arrogance and pride, but rather poor in spirit, then we might actually start to trust God and understand how much blessing there is in that. I hope I'm making sense. Here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. All the good things they have in your life come from him. Your intellect, your abilities, your gifts, your talents, your finances, your relationships are all good things. They're not evil. They come from God. But there is no blessing from God if you put your trust in those things. 
You were made to be in relationship with him. That's the first reason for your existence. And Jesus says you should seek first the kingdom of God. Him first. God blesses those who don't put their trust in those things. He blesses those who put their trust in him full stop. And I have said it three times now and I'll say it again. It's hard. Thankfully, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they want to help you get there. The Holy Spirit will help you put that kind of trust that God is asking for. We have to ask for it. We have to ask for it. Let me go back to the passage. Moving down to verse 4. I'm just going to move through the rest of them now. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, I think this, it's true about those who are grieving something. God will comfort them. There's a blessing in that. But I also think there's something about mourning. Sometimes the state of where we are, maybe it's the state of our nation, whatever it is, those who are thinking about that and, and, and it's part of who they are, God blesses them for that. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. You know, for those who, who reach out for those who are in need, who don't like seeing injustice, who take action. God blesses those who are merciful. Well, he showed us mercy first and we should show mercy to every other person around us. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. You know, this holy, sanctified heart that, we're, um, th- that God wants us to have. where We're dealing with the junk in our life and the sin. God blesses those who have pure hearts. And he blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. He blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and all sorts of evil things, say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. And, that, you know, Jesus does this. And then he says to you, after he says, these things will happen to you, he says, be happy about that. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. We have to, we have to lean into that. If for whatever reason, things are coming against us because of our faith. You know, in many other countries, it's obviously more, more, way more noticeable, by a long way, than what we have. But whenever that happens, you have to lean into the fact there's a reward for you in heaven and remember that others have been persecuted the same way. And that's just the introduction to the sermon that goes on for three chapters. I do remember Lex once did a whole series just on those 12 verses, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> but but read, read those words of Jesus. I hope you hear what he's saying. It's something different to be a follower of his. You know, it's radical. It's completely countercultural. It was in his time, the New Testament times, and it definitely is now. We, we are different to the world. You can't read those words and say we're not. God's calling us to something different. There is an old hymn from 1875. Some of you will recognize it. (laughs) It goes like this. (laughs) I recognized it. Here's what it says. The bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. 
all of self and none of thee. When I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee, yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, its full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, love. Thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee. Thy, Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self, all of thee. I love that, that picture. It's a journey, isn't it? It paints for us the struggle of every disciple and follower of Christ as we move to take the focus of us and onto him and all that he is and has to offer us. We take the focus off us and put it onto Christ alone. Great choice of song, Dan. And I wonder this morning, which verse, you know, those verses I just read to you, which verse... Can you look at it and say, that's me right now? Which verse is it? All of self and none of thee, some of self and some of thee, less of self and more of thee, none of self and all of thee. Where are we at with Jesus this morning? Because as we read deeper into the Sermon on the, of the, mount, on the mountain, quite frankly, all of the Bible, he, Jesus, is calling us to a life that is none of self and all of thee. Apparently, it's a blessed life. Someone shared John Wesley's uh, covenant renewal prayer online this week, and it really challenged me. This is the prayer I want to pray on the first Sunday of 2020. I want to read it to you first because I want you to consider the words and then you decide for yourself if you'll pray this prayer this morning and if you'll, you'll really mean it when you pray it. Okay, so here it is. And as I read, the, the elders are going to come forward and prepare for communion. But focus on the words. I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. Oh, that is so hard to pray. For I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to stand now. For this morning's communion, it's just going to be a little bit different, okay? Here's what I want you to do. Normally, we will gather the elements, stand together, and take them together. I want you to take them in your own time. 
So you come forward and you'll uh, be served by the elders here. You can stay at the altar, you can sit in your seat, whatever you do, you you just be communing with God. And I'll keep that prayer highly up on the the screen, if that's okay. I want you to read through those words and pray them. Pray that covenant this morning to the Lord, if you will. Lord, we pray this morning that you will uh, consecrate the bread and the grape juice that we are about to partake. And we pray that you will bless it to us. And Lord, as we partake in these elements, we remember as you told us to. We remember, Lord, that you went to the cross. We remember, Lord, that you became our sin, the one who knew no sin. And we receive your righteousness and are washed clean. We are grateful this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.